Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Um, good evening and a very warm welcome to all of you, uh, both of those of you who are in the room and those of you who are joining us online for this public lecture by Professor Lee Gardner on Sovereignty Without Power, Liberia in the Age of Empires. My name is Patrick Wallace. I'm a professor in the Department of Economic History um, and its current head of department, and it's my pleasure to chair this event tonight. Um, before we get to business, just a few practicalities. Um, this is a hybrid event. It will be recorded. It will be made available online later. We do have a Twitter hashtag, uh, LSE Ekhis Liberia, which trips off the thumb. Um, uh, so please do tweet if you wish to. Um, but can you put your phones on silent if you are going to do that so that we don't hear? Um, and finally, um, that if there is a fire alarm, we have an assembly point that's on the other side, across, outside, um, outside Lincoln's in fields. So after the lecture is finished, we'll have some time for questions. Uh, those of you online, uh, we will have, uh, we have a Q&A function, so we, you'll, you'll be able to type in your questions. And we'll take a mix of questions from our audience online and from people here in the room. So our speaker today is Lee Gardner. Uh, he is of our very own Department of Economic History and has been since 2011, uh, after, where she joined us after a year at the University of Cape Town. Born in America, trained in Oxford, uh, she's now one of the leading scholars working on African economic history. And this is Lee's inaugural lecture. That matters. This marks her promotion to full professor, and that's the last and highest step in the academic career at LSE. So the award of a chair, it's not something we make in the department. It's in the gift of a committee of professors in the school, and they evaluate the research, the work, the teaching, the contribution of uh, someone being considered, and the test they use is simple. Is this someone whose work is world-leading? to world leading, that's, that's quite a bar. And so it's a wonderful achievement, it's a great moment when anyone is promoted to full professor. Um, and so we're in part here really to celebrate, to listen to Lee as she achieves this kind of pivotal moment in her career. I mean, why, why did this happen? Well, Lee's research is making key advances in our understanding of institutions. At the scale, the structure, the uh, in size of economies in Africa, and the process of state formation in colonial and post-colonial uh, the, the post world there. She's also using her findings to advance both African and comparative economic history. Her first book published 10 years ago broke new ground in our understanding of state building in Africa. She dug deep, she brought lo local government uh, to the center of a narrative in a way that was new to the field. Um, she showed how colonial and local institutions interacted in ways that shaped taxation, colonial spending, the very nature of the colonial state. So that project, well, that was about Kenya, that was about Zambia. Since then, she's moved on to the Belgian Congo and Liberia. So Liberia, that's the second thing we're celebrating today, because this is also the moment where we get to, to launch, to welcome Lee's new book, her second book, Into the World. Um, 
This has just been published by OUP after the glorious birth process that characterizes so much academic publishing today. Um, I think a lot of what Lee's gonna be talking about today comes from that book, from that project. Um, and for that reason, we're particularly pleased to welcome Mr. Albert Jaja, who's a minister counselor at the Embassy of Liberia to the lecture to join us here today. It's really nice to be able to have that conversation. So thank you, Lee, for all you've done for us over the last decade, for all that you will do, and for the lecture, of course. Uh, so over to you. this is on yep well thank you Patrick for the kind introduction and for everybody joining us here and online um, it's an honor to have uh, Albert Jaja here from the Liberian Embassy thank you for coming um, so sovereignty without power is a story about state building and the particular challenges of building an independent state in an age dominated by empires most theories of sovereignty are based on the experiences of powerful countries small states often tend to be neglected in this story but Liberia's history offers us the chance to think about the ways in which having sovereignty, but few resources and little power, shaped its pattern of economic development over the 19th and 20th centuries. So this question is relevant not only to Liberia and Africa, but also to all the other regions where um, European empires expanded during this period of history. As we'll see, Liberia's history bears a strong resemblance to that of other independent countries in Asia and Latin America. Liberia's experience also foreshadowed that of other African countries after decolonization. At independence, most found that recognition of sovereignty did not pave the way for achieving the kinds of development goals they had hoped to achieve. This was not a project I ever expected to work on. <laughs> like most people working on Africa's economic history, my previous research had been on colonialism, and particularly British colonialism. Uh, so there's been a massive expansion in the field of African economic history over the past 20 years, and especially in reconstructing the quantitative economic history of the continent. British colonies have been the subject of most of this research, um, followed by French colonies, and to a much lesser extent, Belgian, Portuguese, and Italian colonies. Virtually none of it has examined the economic histories of places that remained outside colonial rule, like Liberia and apart from a brief period of Italian rule in the 1930s, Ethiopia. I only came to this topic through an accidental find in the archives, which is where so many fun projects arrive. Uh, this was in the papers of the West African Currency Board, which during the colonial period was the institution that issued the currency of British West Africa. So that currency was called the West African Shilling, and it was tied to the British Pound. So most research on colonial currencies has argued that while this suited the needs of British, of British officials and merchants, it was not particularly good for the development of colonized countries. But within those records, I stumbled on a file of correspondence regarding the use of British, this British colonial currency as the primary medium of exchange in Liberia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So reading this file raised a lot of questions for me, which ultimately became some of the motivating questions for this book. The first was why Liberia, which is an independent country, would use a colonial currency. Why didn't it have its own currency? By the 1920s, having a national currency was an important signal of national sovereignty. Uh, in addition to a tool of fiscal management. The answer was that the Liberian government had established its own currency, the Liberian dollar, at after the Declaration of Independence in 1847. So the first Liberian dollar coins are depicted here, and I thank the Smithsonian for permission to use both the images of the coins and the buy blanket that appears in the background. 
On the coins, you can see two features of Liberian sovereignty in the 19th century. On one side, you have a picture of an oil palm um, and sort of boats underneath it. Uh, export of palm oil was uh, one of the leading trades in the coastal economy during the 19th century. And on the other side, you have a woman wearing a cap associated in classical imagery with freed slaves. More on that later. So what happens to the Liberian dollar? The short version is a story that would be familiar to many developing countries, both historically and today. The Liberian dollar was an unbacked paper currency, and during the 19th century, the Liberian government faced a number of fiscal crises, during which time the easiest option was to print more Liberian dollars. As a result, uh, the Liberian dollar began to depreciate against other currencies in the region. This made it difficult for elites to purchase imported goods and for the government to service its debt, which at that point was denominated in pounds. It therefore became expedient for first elites and then the government to adopt the West African shilling in place of the Liberian dollar. In 1942, the West African shilling was replaced in Liberia by the US dollar, and even today the US dollar uh, remains a large share of circulating currency in Liberia. So the story of Liberia's monetary history and its struggles to exercise its monetary sovereignty led to a set of wider questions about how states not under colonial rule manage some of the same relationships with the global economy as colonial states. How similar or different was the experience of independent states? Uh, did interventions by more powerful states linked to money and debt just replicate the conditions of colonial rule, as kind of theories of neocolonialism would suggest? Or did the formal recognition of sovereignty, even of a relatively poor state, change its economic history in some way that mattered materially? What did sovereignty mean in the age of empires? So the 19th century was a dynamic period in the history of global state building. In earlier periods, political institutions had taken a wide variety of forms, from city-states to kind of broader networks of tributes, and were not all the kind of model we, we think of today, a sort of centralized state with territorial boundaries. That model was only consolidated and standardized during the 19th century. So this was a period when Italy and Germany were consolidated, for example, and also when colonial expansion spread this model uh, to much of the rest of the world. Now, these developments were driven by the policies of the powerful states. We know less about what it meant for small states to try to meet these expectations of this kind of standard mode of state building. So President Arthur Barclay described this challenge in an address to the Liberian legislature in 1906, when he said that it is a fact that great powers really settle the principles of international law. Small states must conform. So this book explores what it meant for small states to conform to these changing norms and how this impacted their economic development. So in this presentation, I'll start by giving an overview of Liberia's long-run economic performance, and then compare it to that of Ghana, just to give an example of a colonized country uh, to show the contrasts. Then I focus on the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a period when Liberia fell behind as Ghana grew, to explore the challenges small countries faced in exercising their economic sovereignty. I'll then shift to the interwar and post-war periods to examine some of the opportunities for rents and revenue which the recognition of sovereignty uh, offered the Liberian government. And finally, I'll conclude by considering some of the implications of taking sovereignty seriously for the study of African economic history and the global legacy of empires. So to understand how Liberia's economic history differed from that of colonized countries, we first need something that's been pretty scarce in Liberian history to date, namely data. So the lack of data is no new problem in Liberian economic history. The first full-length book on Liberia's economic history was actually written as a PhD dissertation at the LSE in 1937, later published as a book in 1941. 
This was by an African-American scholar named George Brown, pictured here. Uh, there's a wonderful profile of George Brown, he's a really fascinating figure uh, in Greg Mittman's new book, Empire of Rubber, uh, which also now appears on the LSE History blog, which is where this photo came from. So Brown uh, had a pretty warm welcome during his time doing research in Liberia. Uh, in the acknowledgments to his thesis, he thanks then President Edwin Barclay, the nephew of the Barclay I quoted a minute ago, uh, for use of the presidential yacht. <laughs> Sadly, this doesn't happen on research trips anymore. <laughs> So despite this degree of access, he comments pretty extensively on how difficult it is to find even basic measures of Liberia's economic performance. Diplomats from other parts of the world said much the same thing. So in 1901, a British official writing a trade report decided that the data he could access was so unreliable that he wasn't gonna use any of it. So he duly sent back a trade report without any data on trade, which was very helpful. So this challenge has only increased since the civil wars of the 1990s, when the National Archives were pretty heavily looted. So this is what they looked like in 2017 when I worked there. Uh, that was my desk. Uh, there was no catalog, and at that point, no particular systematic arrangement of what documents were in which box. It was kind of a lucky dip. So the scarcity of available data is one of the reasons that Liberia has been absent from comparative study in African economic history. Uh, economic historians are rational beings, at least most of us, uh, most of the time, and we tend to look first to countries where data are more readily available. And for Africa, this is often those that were under colonial rule. Empires were really good at producing paperwork, right, and by extension data that we can use. Not only did independent states not have to report regularly to any imperial overlord, uh, the documentation they did produce was not duplicated as frequently. Uh, leaving it vulnerable to subsequent destruction of, of archival collections, as happened here. However, what I set out to show in this book is that by triangulating sources from Liberia, along with a number of global archives, and here I particularly need to cite the amazing Liberia collection at the University of Indiana, um, and extracting quantitative data from largely qualitative sources, like those pictured here, um, it is possible to reconstruct a quantitative picture of Liberia's economic history. And this allows us to compare Liberia with other countries and to understand the impact of particular policies adopted by the Liberian government. So this graph shows estimates of Liberia's GDP per capita from 1845 to 2008. Uh, the unit used here, which is the standard in historical national accounting, is 1990 international dollars. Um, so in 1990, the World Bank's poverty rate was a dollar a day. Um, so by this metric, subsistence is basically 419.90 international dollars, which is a dollar a day for most of the population, plus a small elite that has more. Um, so you can see that Liberia kind of started a little bit above subsistence, um, not too far, but a bit above, and then, and then grew. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm not going to say much about how I calculated these estimates, uh, but I'm happy to address this in questions if anyone's interested, or you can read the book where it's elaborately documented. <laughs> So based on these estimates, we can break Liberia's economic history into several key periods, which I'll explore in the rest of the talk. First is a period of growth from the mid-19th century until the 1870s. So this was a period across the West African coast when exports of palm oil, timber, and other commodities were increasing rapidly. So Liberia participated in this growth, and elites on the coast, known in histories of Liberia as the merchant princes, they tended to occupy positions in government as well as, as trade. Um, acted as middlemen between African producers and European merchant ships, or merchant firms kind of parked off, off the coast. There was also an active shipbuilding industry in Liberia itself, and some Liberian ships actually went across the Atlantic. So this growth faltered 
during the World Depression of the 1870s. And for the next half century, Liberia's economy stagnated or even shrank. From the 1930s, this decline was reversed quite dramatically by an influx of foreign investment, which underpins the rapid increase in exports of first rubber and then iron ore, which became the sort of key exports of the 20th century. How far the proceeds of this growth were distributed is one of the big questions in Liberia's economic history and one I'll return to later. So this growth continued until the 1970s, uh, when Liberia was again affected by a global economic crisis. In this case, economic uh, troubles uh, exacerbated social tensions, leading to several decades of political instability and ultimately civil war. So you can see the catastrophic impact of the civil war on per capita incomes here. Since the end of the conflict, Liberia has seen significant economic recovery, but this has been punctuated by a series of shocks, uh, including most recently the 2014 Ebola uh, epidemic and then the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result, it has yet to recover the levels of per capita income it saw in the 1970s. So this trajectory sets Liberia apart from its colonized neighbors. So this graph compares the data from Liberia with estimates of GDP per capita for Ghana since the late 19th century. Uh, these come from separate work from, with Steve Broadbury, who's in the audience today. So here we can see Ghana's economy was growing rapidly in that same period in the decades before World, World War I when Liberia was stagnating. Um, Ghana at that point became the world's leading producer of cocoa, and the construction of the railway extended the geographic range of uh, profitable export production. So this pattern is fairly typical across colonial uh, West Africa, where that period leading up to World War I was a period of uh, a pretty rapid growth. So then Ghana, still under colonial rule, then entered a long period of stagnation from the 1930s until the 1980s. This is a bit more unusual. Um, in most of Africa, the period from the 1940s to the 1970s was a kind of golden age of growth, and you do see some of that in Ghana. Uh, but Ghana's economy during this period was affected by some of the struggles of the cocoa sector, the sort of cocoa disease spreading, um, which affected productivity. And then that was followed by a period of political instability after independence. So after 1982, Ghana's GDP per capita resumed growing, and it overtook Liberia again uh, during the Liberian Civil War. So this divergence between Liberia and its neighbors raises our first question about the link between sovereignty and development. Why was it that Ghana and other West African economies were able to grow so quickly during this first era of globalization and Liberia was not? So a possible explanation might lie in the deeper past. One lesson from recent research in African economic history has been that a lot of the spatial inequalities which exist today um, predate the beginning of the colonial period. Colonization wasn't random. So it might be that European powers selected the most developed areas um, for colonization, setting the stage for different growth patterns later. It is very difficult to make systematic comparisons of African economic performance before the late 19th century. Most of the direct evidence we have is anecdotal and scattered over space and time. It is often also foreign in origin, generated by European merchants, missionaries, explorers, etc. So we need to be a little bit cautious about how we use it. The alternative, increasingly, um, increasingly used in research in economics and economic history, is to use proxies, which are more consistently available, um, but often not direct observations of pre-colonial economies. So this includes measures of things like soil quality and institutional structure. Uh, so you can see on the map above, sort of measure of the centralization of indigenous states taken from anthropological data and the map below um, soil quality. So trade data can also shed some light, but again, we often know much more about coastal trade than trade networks within the interior. 
So if we compare Ghana and Liberia on these measures, Ghana does indeed seem to have been less developed before the, or Liberia, excuse me, seems to have indeed been, been less developed before the 19th century. From what we can tell from data reconstructions and from anecdotal accounts, population density was lower and it had fewer centralized states. The capacity of the soil to store water, important for productivity and systems that rain-fed agriculture, was also lower. Um, and here I have to thank Yuta Bolt, who's a co-author on other projects and who's here tonight, uh, both for walking me through the use of soil quality measures, which are quite complicated, and for also producing this map. <laughs> In contrast, the Gold Coast had been one of the uh, mercantile centers of the Atlantic trade and was also home to the powerful Ashanti Empire, which remained powerful through the 19th century. So all of these differences remained important in shaping the economic and political histories of both countries. Um, and in the book, I developed these points in a lot more detail. But the legacy of these early patterns of development is not enough to explain the divergence we see here. Um, in part because the divergence is not consistent. It's reversed during the interwar period when Ghana stagnated and Liberia began several decades of rapid growth. Underlying resources and political institutions can't really explain this reversal. So to explain this, we need to look at the different paths to statehood in which one became independent and one became a colony and what implications that had. So Liberia's origins as a political unit date from the 1820s and the arrival of a group of African-American migrants uh, from the United States. Their migration was sponsored by an organization called the American Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color, more commonly known and easier to say as the American Colonization Society or ACS. Um, the ACS is sometimes referred to as a philanthropic organization, but it had a very complicated and, and slightly more nuanced history than that. It was founded and led by Southern slaveholders who mainly worried that the small but growing population of freeborn African Americans would threaten the political stability of slave societies in the South. So they organized and funded a program to promote the migration of this group uh, to territory they acquired in, on the West African coast. They acquired both sort of trade and goods and also occasionally at gunpoint. So the ACS and its founders were not the first to come up with the idea of, of emigration. Um, and initially there was a lot of support from amongst the free black community itself. So during the 18th century, for example, there were groups of free blacks from Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, who actually signed petitions in support of emigration. And in 1815, an African-American merchant and abolitionist named Paul Cuffey actually accompanied 38 migrants to Sierra Leone on one of his own ships. He died shortly thereafter, which put an end to the project. But the motivations and leadership of the ACS undermined a lot of that support. And it faced considerable opposition from both abolitionists and educated freeborn population in the North. Still, over the course of the 19th century, some 16,000 migrants went to what became Liberia on ships organized by the ACS. So this graph shows annual data on the numbers of emigrants whose passage is organized by either the ACS or the largest of what was a series of state societies, uh, the Maryland Colonization Society. We know quite a lot about these immigrants, and there's been a lot written about particular groups of them, often divided by state, by period, or by even by particular families. So this is a really rich historiography. It, a lot of people argue, and I agree, that it comes at the expense of deeper work on the indigenous population, which still is yet to be done. But the stories it reveals are fascinating. So what this book does is try to bring together for the first time all of the individual data on these 16,000 migrants to look at who went in what period, who, you know, what they were like and why they went in a more comprehensive way. So these migrants formed the core of Liberia's governing elite. The early arrivals, um, who tended to be kind of 
uh, both more skilled and more literate than later arrivals sort of average level of human capital went down over time, um, forming some inequalities that, formed, that uh, fed political tensions later. Uh, but they established a series of settlements along the coast shown in red on the map here. So these settlements were initially governed by white agents of the ACS, but by the 1840s they were governing themselves, and in 1847 the Liberian government issued the Declaration of Independence. So from 1847 until 1980, a government dominated by these same migrants and their descendants, known as Americo-Liberians, uh, would expand its reach over the indigenous population, but allowed that population little say in how it was governed. Uh, its rule was autocratic and at times fairly brutal in ways I'll talk about later. So the prominence of Americo-Liberians in political institutions of Liberia has made Liberia difficult for historians to classify, which is another reason it often hasn't appeared in comparative work. So some people, like Nigerian historian Monde Akpan, describe it as essentially a settler colony, but without sort of external backup. Others argue that it was a de facto, if not formally recognized, colony of the US. Um, I make a different argument um, in, in the book in that we need to take Liberia seriously as an independent state. It was hardly alone in being ruled by a narrow elite. That was pretty common in the 19th century when representative institutions were pretty far, few and far between. Nor was it that unusual for that elite to be foreign in its outlook and orientation. Um, even independent countries under indigenous leadership tended to claim territory not traditionally under their rule. Um, this happened in, in Ethiopia under Emperor Johannes and Menelik and also in Siam, now Thailand. So what this book tries to understand is how that elite having been recognized as an independent state by other states, which became a key element of sovereignty during the 19th century, uh, tried to use that sovereignty. So the Declaration of Independence was an act of economic as well as political sovereignty. Uh, its timing was dictated by a dispute about trade, um, and in particular the right of the Americo-Liberian government to tax it. Uh, a group of British merchants from Sierra Leone had argued that because Liberia was not a recognized state, it couldn't charge tariffs at the ports it claimed authority over. So as future president uh, Joseph Jenkins Roberts put it at the end of the Constitutional Convention convened in July 1847, as our territory has expanded, our population increased, our, our commerce has also increased. <coughs> Questions have, a, have arisen which it is supposed can be adjusted only by an agreement between sovereign powers. So at the urging of the Sierra Leone merchants, the British government asked the American government to clarify its position on Liberia. Is this a colony? The American government at that point was much more interested in westward expansion and said, no, nothing to do with us. Um, so at that point, Liberia issued its own declaration of independence and was very shortly thereafter recognized as a sovereign state uh, by a number of European governments, including the British government, though notably not by the US government until 1862. So it's sort of fitting that the first questions that the new government needed to grapple with were questions about how to engage with the global economy. So this debate encompassed a number of areas of public policy, um, from trade to monetary policy to foreign debt. And all three of these Liberia's history mirrored that of other independent states. So the first such issue was trade. Around the world in the 19th century saw fierce debates between politicians, economists, and others about trade policy and the relative benefits of free trade or protectionism. Uh, during earlier periods, high transport costs had restricted long-distance trade to a small number of high-value-to-weight goods consumed by elites. So farmers and other producers of cheaper goods enjoyed kind of a natural protection. But with the advent of the steamship and the railway, people could transport bulkier goods at much, much lower cost, and that natural protection disappeared. While this could benefit local consumers, it might also threaten local producers of those goods. 
So these debates extend into Liberia. So this quote is from an essay published by James Briggs Payne, who is a minister and also future president of Liberia in 1860. So in it, he reflects on a number of different areas of economic policy, from money to trade to industrial production, a number of other things. Um, and here he argues that Liberia should not adopt a policy of free trade because it couldn't compete on equal terms with wealthier states. So there's a standard narrative in existing economic history of Liberia which goes as follows. Americo-Liberian elites, wanting to keep the profits of trade for themselves, uh, adopted highly protectionist policies during the 19th century, often referred to as the closed door period. And these policies hindered its economic growth. So during the interwar period, however, um, these policies were reversed and the government aggressively courted foreign trade and capital. So this story is based on the qualitative history of something called the ports of entry laws, um, which restricted international trade to the set of ports depicted on this map. I mean, the number of ports kind of fluctuated at times. In constructing this history, I was greatly helped by the work of Nakamo Duce, who I think is joining us online. Um, the first such laws were adopted as early as 1822, when ACS administrator Jehudi Ashman recommended prohibiting all foreign ships from trading at the settlement in Monrovia. Ordinances passed in 1827, 1837, and 1848 reinforced these. Uh, these restrictions. The strongest rules came in with the 1864 Ports of Entry Act, which dictated that no foreign vessel should be allowed to trade except at specific ports of entry. Uh, these ports of entry laws were in place in some form or another until 1930, although they were loosened over the first decades of the 20th century. So foreign observers often blame these laws for Liberia's economic stagnation. The 1901 trade report I mentioned earlier stated that the present law forbidding any but Liberian citizens to establish business houses in the interior is a great hindrance to trade. The 1907 version of that report argued that the present laws of the country are most detrimental to its development. Economic histories of Liberia have said much the same thing. So Van der Kruyp in his book from the 1980s claims that the ports of entry laws were the beginning of a vicious circle which explains, as he put it, Liberia's failure to start even a beginning of economic growth prior to 1947. The quantitative history of Liberian trade policy tells a different story. So the book provides the first measurement of Liberia's tariffs, which it then compares to that of other countries. So one measure of protectionism in economic history is the average tariff rate, um, which, or the customs revenue as a share of the value of imports. So this allows us to factor in the fact that there's usually a variety of duties with different types of rates and kind of equal those out. So this graph shows Liberia's tariff rates uh, from 1870 to 1948. Um, during the 19th century, annual data on customs revenue were not available, so I've used nominal tariff rates here. Um, but looking at the sort of legal history of tariffs, they did not really successfully impose any special rates beyond the kind of average rate um, for very long, so it shouldn't be very different. So the graph shows that tariffs increased rather than decreased after the end of the uh, ports of entry laws. And it also shows that Ghana's average tariff rates were significantly higher than those of Liberia. So tariffs were a key source of revenue for Ghana. They were virtually the only major source of public revenue. Uh, and as a result, they made significant investments in state capacity to ensure their collection. So to put these in rates in global perspective, we can also look at the average tariff rates for Asia and Latin America. So Latin America was at the time the most protectionist region in the world. Uh, its high tariffs were, uh, like Ghana's, initially imposed to generate revenue uh, after independence, and then later used to protect local industries. So the purpose shifted over time. Asia was the least protectionist due to treaties with low tariff Britain, which restricted tariff levels. So Liberia's tariffs seem to tell a different story than the standard narrative about a shift from a closed door to an open door. 
I mean, one way to reconcile this is to think about other motivations for the ports of entry laws. One such motivation was taxation and the limited ability of the Liberian state to collect it. Um, at that point, much like Ghana, taxes on trade were the Liberian government's largest single source of revenue. And other governments, including Ghana's, also closed and opened ports and tried to kind of channel trade in particular places uh, to ensure it was worth the cost of a resident administrator, basically. So Liberia was not the only independent state to grapple with its trade policy during this period. So Paul Gutenberg and his pioneering history of trade policy in Peru tracks its shift from a highly protectionist state, similar to other Latin American economies, to a liberal free trading economy. Um, after the discovery of guana, more commonly known as bird poop, uh, which was valuable as for its use as a fertilizer. Uh, they still export guano from Peru today. That picture is from a more recent <laughs> period. So this book documents, so, so Gutenberg documents the ways in which uh, these disputes pitted different interest groups in Peru against one another. And this book does a similar thing, uh, looking at tensions within the Liberian elite. And those tensions result in what was often an inconsistent trade policy through the 19th century. So if Liberian protectionism doesn't explain the gap between Liberia and Ghana, what does? One big difference in the two countries, between the two countries was access to foreign capital. Foreign investment was what funded the construction of railways, which fueled the economic growth of Ghana and other West African economies uh, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So Ghana, like other British colonies, was able to access British capital at lower cost than other countries at similar levels of development. In the financial history literature, this is known as the empire effect. So this graph shows the bond spreads for the Gold Coast and the Cape Colony, just to give two examples. So bond spreads are the difference between the interest rates on particular bonds, and those are the safest possible investment in this period British consuls. And they provide a measure of how comparatively risky investors perceive the government debt of different countries to be. So these two British colonies, and basically all others, I can only fit two on the graph, uh, had interest rates which were not very much higher than those of British consuls, suggesting they were considered to be fairly safe. The reason for this is debated, uh, but as my colleague Olivier Caminati, who's also here, <laughs> and his co-authors have written, it's likely to be because colonial governments were seen as subsidiary units of the British government and could therefore share in its good credit to some extent. As I've written elsewhere, particularly for African colonies, there were also elaborate systems of imperial management to help keep borrowing costs low. So this was not done out of altruism on the part of the British government. Uh, rather, British officials realized that the only way they could make their colonies financially self-sufficient was by building a tax base, which in practice meant expanding export production. Independent countries, by contrast, often had much higher and more volatile bond spreads, which made it harder to use debt for investment. So these next two series show the bond spreads for Liberia and Portugal, uh, both countries which struggled to service their debts. Um, they are at many times higher than those of the two British colonies at the beginning of the period. The difference decreased for reasons I'll come to later, but it never converged entirely. So Liberia's struggles with debts can perhaps best be illustrated by the story of Liberia's first loan which was raised in the London market in 1871. The loan was a particular project of President Edward Roy, pictured here. Um, on his election to the presidency in 1870, Roy very clearly linked the consolidation of the Liberian state with economic development, and in particular, the construction of infrastructure. So he talks a lot about railways. So to accomplish these, these goals, he sent a commission to London to raise a loan of 100,000 pounds on the London market. Uh, this effort was a pretty unmitigated failure, in part because structural factors made it hard for states like Liberia to borrow on affordable terms. So the commission hired an agent uh, to, in London to help them negotiate the loan, a British businessman named David Chinnery. 
Uh, this wasn't a promising start. Uh, so there's quite a lot of literature in financial history about how the importance of having good intermediaries for uh, keeping borrowing costs low for governments trying to raise loans. Uh, Chinnery was not one of these. Um, he's, it's hard to find out very much about him, but where he appears most often in archival records is in bankruptcy proceedings um, <laughs> after his various business ventures in, in West Africa went bust. So whether due to Chenery or structural factors, I'm not sure, but the loan was issued at a ruinous interest rate of 77%. So to put this in context, Ghana's first railway loan had an interest rate of half that level. In addition, the bonds were steeply discounted and three years' worth of interest payments were deducted off of the principal. So as a result, the actual cash raised by the loan was only a little more than half of the debt that was taken on. So not surprisingly, given the terms, the loan was really controversial in Liberia. And it was one of the reasons that Roy here, if you notice the dates of his presidency was very short, uh, he was overthrown in what became Liberia's first coup d'etat. Now what happened to him is not known for certain, uh, but one story that circulated through diplomatic gossip at the time is that he drowned trying to escape from the country by rowing out to a British merchant ship, uh, carrying with him a bag of gold sovereigns that had come from the, the loan. Don't know if that's true, but it's, it's an interesting story. So this series of events meant that the loan achieved very few, if any, of the development goals with, uh, which had been raised. The Liberian government defaulted as soon as the deducted interest payments ran out in 1874, and it remained in default for the next quarter of a century. So by that point, interest arrears had added quite considerably to the overall debt burden, and the only way the government could raise further loans was by agreeing to an ever-expanding set of foreign, uh, financial controls by foreign creditors. So Liberia was not alone in this. The imposition of foreign financial controls was pretty common around the world during the first stage of financial globalization. In Liberia, they took the form of foreign officials being placed in charge of first customs collection, then of basically all tax revenue, and foreign advisors were also placed in charge of Liberia's military frontier force. So in the book, I argue that the impact of these foreign financial controls helps us explain one of the more notorious episodes in Liberia's economic history, namely the 1930 League of Nations investigation into forced labor. A commission appointed by the League uh, found that there was widespread use of forced labor and the forced requisitioning of crops, um, which was often undertaken at the behest of government officials. Um, so this is a fairly major moment. It's one of the few times when you see Liberia making the front page of the New York Times um, during this period. So this use of forced labor had pretty severe economic consequences, uh, depopulating villages in areas of heavy recruitment and also undermining local agricultural production. People would say, we don't want to grow anything, so people just come along and seize it. So there's a large literature on the kind of geopolitics of this investigation, which I won't get into here. But that literature often refers kind of in vague terms to the financial struggles of the Liberian government as one of the things that's kind of underpinning this. Um, this book is more specific, and what I argue is that these expanding foreign financial controls, particularly over all sources of cash revenue, uh, left the government nowhere to turn really except to increasing in-kind sources of revenue which foreign financial advisors wouldn't seize. This included forced labor and the requisitioning of crops. Um, this is essentially a kind of backup way of paying government officials when cash revenue was being allocated elsewhere. So as in Latin America, the Ottoman Empire, and Eastern Europe, the imposition of foreign financial controls did not lead to the increased capacity and efficiency of the fiscal system, but rather to this shift towards forced labor and, and forced requisition. 
Okay, so Liberia's stagnation during what was for most of Africa a period of growth was most likely the result of its inability to mobilize foreign capital uh, to invest in infrastructure the way other economies did. Liberia began in the 1930s at an economic and political low point, struggling to service its foreign debt and or pay its officials, and with a sort of existential threat to its sovereignty coming from the League of Nations report, where there were lots of threats of establishing a mandate and things like that. What then drove this dramatic shift in Liberia's economic fortunes in the middle of the 1930s? This is also explained by access to foreign capital, but through a different channel uh, than that used by colonized countries. So if the previous section of this talk focused on the challenges of exercising sovereignty, uh, this section highlights some of the opportunities available uh, to governments recognized as sovereign to use that sovereignty as a source of economic rents. So this concept is known by a number of different names in African history, usually in reference to the policies of post-independent states. So Bayard refers to extroversion, while Cooper describes gatekeeper states. But the overall idea through all of this is that states with weak internal control uh, can use their external recognition to gain links to the global, to control links to the global economy and gain income in the process. So political scientist Daniel Dresner, in an article in Foreign Policy in 2009, argues that uh, sovereignty is often for sale. As he writes, many small countries voluntarily auction off their sovereignty to the highest bidder, reaping great rewards in the process. So this book examines three ways in which the Liberian government auctioned its sovereignty in exchange for financial gain in the 20th century. So we'll start with concessions. The second mechanism I'll talk about is through foreign aid. And the third is through the literal selling of the flag and the establishment of the Liberian ship shipping registry. So the first is foreign concessions. A concession can loosely be defined as a contrast between a company and a government in which the company acquires some kind of exclusive rights to a resource that could be lands, minerals, or a market, a particular market, in exchange for some kind of commitment to develop that resource, and generally an agreement to pay taxes or share revenue with the state. Uh, this was and remains a common method of attracting foreign capital, uh, but one about which there's been little systematic study. Uh, as we'll say, there is an ongoing project at London Business School by Elias Papiano and co-authors, uh, one of whom I think is on the Zoom call, um, which will hopefully change that. So in 1931, George Best wrote an article about the use of foreign concessions for the Crozierville Observer. The Observer, incidentally, uh, was the precursor to today's Daily Observer, which is still run by the Best family. When I was in Liberia, Bi Best was tremendously helpful in arranging access to the Observer's really excellent archive um, from which this quotation is drawn. And he told me recently the archive is being digitized and hopefully be more widely available soon, which is great. So in his 1931 article, Best compared Liberian policies to those of Mexico uh, under Porfirio Diaz, an area known to historians of Mexico as the Porfirato. Uh, the book builds on this comparison, drawing on work by Stephen Haber, Noel Moore, and Armando Rosso on the economic history of the Porfirato. So they argued that the granting of concessions by Diaz to companies in a range of industries, from mining to agriculture to manufacturing, uh, was the only way in which the, the kind of weak Liberia, or weak Mexican state, excuse me, um, could incentivize investment. Lacking the capacity to protect property rights for everybody, it offered selective enforcement for a small group of concessionaires. In return, those concessionaires channeled revenue, revenue to Diaz and other elites. So it's a picture of Diaz, just to, for context. So Best's critique was particularly targeted at the concession agreement with the Firestone Rubber Company, uh, originally signed in 1926 and revised in 1931. The concession granted Firestone a million acres of land for a rubber plantation. Uh, the land was leased very cheaply, and the agreement further granted Firestone pretty generous tax incentives. 
So it was through this concession that rubber, which people had attempted to cultivate in Liberia since the 19th century, became one of the country's leading exports. Uh, so the increase in tons exported is shown here. By the 1940s, rubber accounted for 80% of the total value of Liberia's exported goods. Uh, this only fell when exports of iron ore began to kind of overtake rubber in the 1950s. So I don't have time today to discuss the history of Firestone in great detail, but I recommend Greg Nittman's book for a nice accounting of, of that concession and its impacts. So George Best was comparing Porfirio Diaz to Edwin Barclay, but a more likely comparator is actually William Tubman, who succeeded Barclay. So he's pictured here. So Tubman was president from 1944 to 1971, a nice long period of time, and he remains a pretty controversial figure. Uh, so this picture came from a blog post actually arguing that Liberia should no longer celebrate his birthday. Uh, so it remains a kind of present, present issue. So during Tubman's time in office, the number of concessions multiplied dramatically as pictured in this graph, and they became a really important part of Liberia's political economy. Uh, concession companies could, at least in theory, claim huge chunks of Liberia's land area. So none were as big as Firestone, but concessions of half a million acres, 600,000 acres were pretty common. Uh, now, in practice, even Firestone, the largest of these, cultivated only a tiny fraction of that, uh, of the land that had been granted. Special tax incentives contained in concession agreements meant that over time, Liberia essentially had sort of two parallel tax systems, one for concessionaires and one for everybody else. And concessions also enjoyed pretty close ties to the Liberian elites and government officials, many of whom had side positions as shareholders and advisors to concession firms. Paper, Mora, and Razzo document the same kind of close connections in Mexico, and argue that the integration of the elite made enforcement of property rights more credible to potential concession companies. So there remain pretty fierce debates on the impact of these concessions on Liberia's economic development. On the one hand, as we've seen, economic growth accelerated rapidly with the expansion and export production. Concession companies often established schools and clinics, and in the paper I showed that levels of schooling and literacy rose in this period. These developments are one reason why there remains some degree of nostalgia about this period within Liberia, despite the increasing autocracy and corruption of the Tubman regime. On the other hand, it is likely that most of the proceeds of this growth went to a narrow section of the elite, as well as the companies themselves. The protection of property rights extended to concession companies did not apply to indigenous holders of the land, and land was seized often very violently without compensation. Uh, so an empire of rubber mitten does a bunch of oral history research on the lasting damage these seizures caused. So the other mechanism by which the Liberian government sacrificed some of its sovereignty for revenue, and which would become familiar to governments in developing countries in later decades, was through foreign aid. During World War II, Liberia's strategic position on the far western edge of Africa, closest to the Americas, made it a target for American land lease aid, which was used to build an airfield, Roberts Field, named after Liberia's first president, and the free port of Monrovia. In local terms, uh, the resources that funded these projects were substantial, many times um, annual government revenue in some years. On a per capita basis, Liberia became one of the largest recipients of American aid in the 1940s and 1950s. It got more than Japan or Vietnam and was not far off the amounts received by Korea and the, or the UK. State Department officials described it as one of the proving grounds for Truman's point four plans. So this aid came at a heavy cost of control over the products of the investment that they received. Liberian efforts to retain management over the port of Monrovia, for example, fell on deaf ears. These disputes over control were one reason for Edwin Barclay's statement quoted here that before it was roasted, the turkey would like some say in the manner in which it was to be carved up. <laughs> it did not always receive that say. 
So there were frequent tensions over what would be funded and how. When Tubman wanted to use USAID to construct a water supply to Monrovia, the US government initially objected on the grounds that it would, this would disproportionately benefit the elite and not the majority of the population. At the same time, the desire of US officials to keep Liberia on the side of the West during the Cold War meant that it often ignored corruption or the repression of political opposition. Now, the final example of Liberia's efforts to leverage its sovereignty is the attempt made in 1948 to join the growing offshore economy. So the impetus for this came from a man called Edward Stettinius, pictured here in his lovely cover on Time magazine. Um, Stettinius was head of US Steel before he joined government service during, during World War II. First as Lend-Lease Administrator, and then Secretary of State under Franklin Roosevelt. Um, it was in this former capacity that he first came to Liberia to open the port of Monrovia after the uh, Lend-Lease funds were used to build it. After Roosevelt's death in 1946, he famously did not get along with Truman, um, so it wasn't going to stay on after that. Um, Stettinius returned to the private sector and became head of one of the concession companies um, granted a concession by Tubman. Unlike other concessions, which were mostly focused on the production of particular things, iron ore, rubber, whatever, uh, Stettinius's Liberia company had a fairly broad and quite vague development remit. Um, to fund all of this, Stettinius and his colleagues proposed a novel way of channeling foreign investment in, into Liberia, namely by turning Liberia into what he called the financial center of Africa. Tubman went a bit further and said it was going to become the financial center of the world. As the quote here suggests, officials in the US departments, State Department, and many people in Liberia itself were a little bit suspicious of what was essentially seen as an effort to attract flight capital um, after the war. So the plan became law in 1948 when the Liberian legislature passed three laws which loosened corporation law so that companies could be established in Liberia without being subject to Liberian tax, and also created the Liberian Shipping Registry. These efforts had pretty mixed success. And in the book, I explore the implications of this mixed success for understanding regulatory competition and the rise of, of tax havens and other offshore centers in the post-war period. Liberia never became a financial center of Africa or the world and attracted relatively little of the flight capital that the State Department was worried about. The shipping registry, on the other hand, became a great success. So this graph shows shipping tonnage by flag of registration from 1949, the year Liberian registry was established until 2000. So it firstly illustrates the decline of powers like the US and the UK in favor of so-called flagged inconvenience like Panama here or Liberia, uh, which attracted shipping through less restrictive regulatory labor and tax regimes. Within 20 years of the registry being established, Liberia had the largest fleet in the world in terms of gross tonnage by quite a bit, as you can tell here. Um, this is largely through the registration of sort of supersized oil tankers, which were just coming on stream in the 1950s and 60s. Oil spills and other mishaps involving Liberian flagged ships have led to repeated controversies about this over the years. Uh, although I show in the book the Liberian fleet was actually, is actually newer um, and has lower casualty rates than the US and the UK fleets. The shipping registry became a strategically, if not always quantitatively, important source of revenue. Uh, from the 1950s through the 1980s, registration fees represented about 10% of total government revenue. So it's important, but not vital. Uh, the registry was then and continues to be managed from abroad, with offices based in Virginia in the US. After retaining a fee, the management company then transfers the remaining proceeds to the Liberian government. During the Civil Wars, when most other revenue sources had dried up, however, the Maritime Registry became both a substantial share of total revenue and also a sort of fungible source of revenue, which at least one UN panel was found used to evade arms sanctions. So while the political instability of the 1980s and 1990s led to some decline in Liberian registered ships, it remains one of the largest shipping fleets in the world today. 
So the Liberian government's effort to market its sovereignty has been lasting legacy not only for its own economy, but from the world's economy. <laughs> so in 1957, Vice President, then Vice President, Richard Nixon, visited Monrovia as part of a broader African tour, which began with the ceremony commemorating Liberia's independence from Britain. Liberia had been, as he described, an island of independence surrounded by empires. As of March 7, 1957, it was no longer an island. Over the course of the next decade, most of, the colonized, most of colonized Africa became independent. In Ghana, the transition to independence, um, in Ghana and elsewhere, the transition to independence was a period of great hope and optimism. That the ending of colonial rule would pave the way for economic, social, and political transformation. The challenges faced by Liberia, however, foreshadowed the history of many African states after independence. Most would and continue to struggle with some of the same questions about trade policy, monetary independence, and foreign debt. So the message I'd like to leave you with here in the last couple of minutes is that sovereignty matters. Self-determination matters. Countries that remain independent experience a different pattern of development from those that were colonized even though most experienced pretty extensive foreign interventions, just as Liberia did. Um, and these interventions were both by invitation and, and coerced. Self-determination also mattered in places that were colonized. So in other works, I'm published with Egypt Bowles, um, I've argued that the structure of colonial institutions also left considerable room for the exercise of power by indigenous institutions. This again was not benevolence, uh, but necessity. Colonial governments everywhere were short of resources and relied on indigenous agents to do much of the on-the-ground on ground governing for them. So one of the underappreciated, at least in economic history, if not all fields, legacies of colonial rule is this a structure of parallel institution, of subordinate sovereignties within the structure of a centralized state. So in, in the colonial Gold Coast, native authorities, governed by chiefs and council, were the primary executive agents of British colonial rule. They exercised authority over a wide range of areas of rural life, from land tenure, local markets, and local infrastructure. And in a paper with Uta Bolt, Jennifer Kohler, a PhD student in this department who sadly passed away earlier this month, uh, Jack Payne and James Robinson, we show a cor close correlation between the structure of those native authority governments and pre-colonial states. Their remaining authority represents, at least to some extent, a residual sovereignty, which was then consolidated by colonial policies of decentralization. If thinking about sovereignty often suffers from a bias towards more powerful countries, it often also suffers from what we might describe as survival bias. So business historians spend a lot of time worrying about how the fact that their conclusions are based only on those companies that survive long enough to leave papers behind. Um, we know much less about companies that failed. States and other political institutions are similar. So we focus a lot on those that remained externally recognized or became so, but not on those which might still exercise some residual sovereignty even without that recognition. This holds true not only in Africa, but throughout the world, including in the US. So we often think of colonialism as having a very different impact on the institutions of the US and Africa, just based on their kind of different positions and kind of global economic hierarchies. However, they do share one institutional inheritance, which is this legacy of subordinate sovereignties. In Africa, this takes the form of traditional authorities, which have retained significant influence, despite the best efforts of post-independence leaders like Nkrumah to undermine them. In the US, Canada, and other former colonies, um, they continue to grapple with the residual sovereignty of indigenous states and what that means for the structure of institutions. So sovereignty is a term with many meanings, and there's a danger of applying it too broadly to states and other institutions which might have very little real power. But the point I want to make here is that there's also a danger in disregarding it. 
So as I noted at the beginning, there's a tendency to use the term neocolonialism to refer to a whole host of financial, monetary, and other economic interventions. This implies that they were the same as colonial rule and had the same impact on patterns of economic and political development. What I want to argue here is that they were not the same and that more piecemeal interventions like the ones experienced by Liberia and other independent states left the policy spaces available that were not available to colonized countries. And within these spaces, the Liberian government made policies that shaped the lives and livelihoods of the people it governed. So the lesson from the history of Liberia is to pay more attention to these spaces within the economic history of other countries and parts of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee. Uh, absolutely fascinating um, and incredibly rich. Um, we've got uh, time now for questions. Um, those who are following us uh, online, uh, I have a way to see questions as they appear. Very exciting. Um, those of you in the room, we have a more traditional mechanism of raising your arm. Um, and we will go around the room and take questions as they appear. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Let's start with the gentleman in the middle row, third row there. Um, who was very eager and got his arm straight up. Please, over to you. Could you introduce yourself before at the start of your question, please? Yeah, um, thank you very much. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former customs officer who worked in um, EU uh, capacity building programs in Liberia. Um, actually, there wasn't, to be honest, there wasn't a huge amount we could say because our counterparts knew their stuff. Um, on the way in, on the flight from Brussels, which stopped at Freetown, it was very, very interesting to see some military-looking Slavic people who got off the plane and their counterparts who got on. Clearly a change of shift there. Um, my, my question is... Um, Relating to both Liberia and the other countries you've covered, you mentioned Zambia, I believe that's right, and pre-independence Belgian Congo. Do you have any plans to continue your work on all these countries to the present day, not least because, of course, the key commodities and the concessions are becoming even more strategically important. And this is important. And will these countries get the benefits? But equally, um, will everything be joined up? Thank you. Uh, great question. I mean, in terms of bringing my own research to the present day, this is working. Okay. Uh, in terms of bringing my own research to the present day, I mean, I feel like, I, yes and no. I mean, I, um, I do feel like other fields are kind of better equipped in terms of methods and things like that um, to kind of go into the field and look at kind of how things operate than, than I am. I'm trained as a historian. <laughs> and archival records, the closer you get to the present, are harder to access. Um, 
having said that, I think one of the things that's really interesting and been interesting in this project and others is just looking at the legacy of the past on kind of structures in the present day. So when I was in Liberia doing research for this book, I had a very interesting chat with two retired um, officials from the Ministry of Finance who had been sort of brought back to reconstruct internally kind of the way the, the systems had been structured before the Civil War. They'd been restructured in a different way um, with kind of assistance from the IMF and the World Bank and things like that. And they were looking to actually bring back the old mechanism because they felt like that worked better for them even though it wasn't part of the official system anymore. So I think looking at, I mean, this is really one of the motivations for this book is understanding where the history comes into shaping the present. So yes. that answers your question. Brilliant. Um, Safia, for, Safia next, please, the second row in the middle. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for that lecture. It was ab absolutely fantastic as usual. Um, my question is about the expenditure side. I was wondering whether there's anything that you would know or be able to say about um, the success of these loans um, and in, ter in terms of Liberia's ability to either build infrastructure or the choices they made and how that was different perhaps for other colonial countries um, in terms of uh, what they chose to spend their money on? Sure, great question. Um, in terms of the success of trying to use the loans for development goals, I, there wasn't. I mean, I'd, so the, the final kind of repayment of the 1871 loan didn't happen until the 1950s. And within that time, most of the money raised, they raised money several times throughout that period. Um, again, in uh, 1906, uh, again in 1912, and then again in 1926 with the Firestone concession also came with a loan. And in all of that, most of what the loans were used for was to pay back other loans. Um, so essentially, they had this sort of proceeds, limited proceeds from the 1871 loan, and very little thereafter in terms of, so I think in the 1906 loan, there was a couple of roads, you know, it wasn't very substantial. Um, Firestone did build some infrastructure, but it's unclear whether that was from the loan or they would have built it anyway, because it was for their own purposes, essentially. Um, I think in terms of the difference with colonizers, I mean, obviously the terms of borrowing are different, right, which affects how much you can actually use for productive purposes versus something else and repaying other loans. Um, but I think also, I mean, this is what I write about elsewhere, the, the sort of part of the mechanisms that the British, British government at least used to keep borrowing costs low for their colonies was to try to actually do a lot of the expenditure in advance. So in Ghana, most of the railway was built before they raised their first railway loan in 1903. And it was basically so they could put in the prospectus of the loan, the railway is built, so the revenue returns are immediate, you know, are already happening. Um, obviously, you can only do that if you have somebody out there in a position to front the cash to build the railway. Liberia was not in that position. Um, let's come around to the front and we'll start. Okay, please. I have several names on the list, so I will come around <laughs> to you uh, and keep you. Uh, thank you, Lee, for such an interesting uh, talk. And as someone who works in Latin America, it was very, very nice to see those references. And also uh, it raised some, some issues that are familiar, being Latin America is the sort of continent that was uh, soaring without power for, for mm. a century. So um, uh, I have a ton of questions, but I would like to focus on that period of stagnation, mm. the late 19th century and early uh, 20th century, uh, thinking comparatively. Um, uh, so you, you made it clear uh, with the railways, with railways example, how uh, these uh, non-access to uh, foreign capitals uh, could be one of the explanations behind mm. the stagnation. 
But I wonder uh, wh why uh, Liberia, unlike, for example, the Indian countries, did not have access to US financial capital in the, in the 1920s. Uh, also considering, considering this re relationship, that a, a historical relationship between Liberia and, and, and the US. So uh, why was this absent? Because this was uh, present in, in some Indian mm -hmm. countries. And, and a second element that was missing at, uh, in, in, in your talk uh, in comparison with um, Latin American countries also was uh, this uh, complaint about preferential treatment mm. uh, in the 1930s, so commerce, trade. Uh, what can you say about, about this in, in, in the Liberian uh, case uh, if compared to the experience of other colonies you're more familiar with? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Great questions. Um, so they did actually shift to U.S. capital, um, basically in the sort of early rounds of, of dollar diplomacy in the early 20th century. So in 1912, they raised a loan um, that was tellingly referred to as the refunding loan um, because it basically just refunded old debt. Um, when that was essentially done as a kind of international consortium that was largely American, so it was denominated in dollars, some of the bonds were held in Europe and in the UK, but it was mostly an American project. Um, it involved a customs receivership with representatives from the US, the UK, Germany, and France. Um, and there's interesting correspondence in the archives about all of them fighting over who got to be based in Monrovia versus elsewhere. <laughs> um, anyway, but, um, and then with World War I, essentially that, that sort of cooperation obviously with Germany disappears. Um, and it becomes a kind of U.S. project. There's then discussions about a U.S. government loan in 1922, but that fails to be failed to pass Congress. So this then leads to the loan attached to the Firestone concession. So they're still in need of money at this point. Revenue is increasing, but expenditure is increasing as well. So they're in a kind of semi-permanent state of fiscal crisis throughout this period. And so they do need the, there's an argument sometimes that the loan is kind of foisted on them by Firestone, at least my reading of it, is that they really did need the money because they were struggling to sort of service the, the 1912 loan um, and lots of kind of domestic debt was piling up and things like that. Um, so they did. In terms of uh, trade policies in the 1930s, I mean, this is really when they shift towards trying to attract concessions. Firestone's the first and then they kind of go. so. Trade policy is pretty loose, and they remove all of the ports of entry laws and, and things like that. Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to take a question from the um, one of the online participants, uh, Mustafa from uh, Somalia, um, because it, it it goes to the prehistory in some sense of this. Because it, you 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 touched a bit on this in the lecture, but I think one of the kind of interesting quest, one of the kind of surprising things is how it was that this how it was that Liberia comes to be this object of interest from the United States. How does that come about? What's the background to this kind of broader engagement? Could you just say a little bit more on that? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, the original interest obviously comes from the fact that it's um, migrants from the US that are kind of the, the ruling elite. Um, but the, the relationship kind of changes over time. So there's an assumption that that sort of background explains everything that happens in the 20th century. I don't think that's actually the case. Because by the middle, you know, second half of the 19th century, the U.S. is basically saying, okay, we're doing something else now. We're not that interested in this. And Britain, Germany, the Netherlands are the kind of primary trading partners um, for Liberia. Uh, it comes back around really over the issue of rubber and strategic interests, right? Sort of strategic value of commodities is uh, the first question asked about. Um, so after World War One. 
Britain kind of vets the idea of restricting access to rubber from its colonies. And at that point, Firestone and other US producers get a bit panicky and think, oh, what if we can't access Malaysian rubber anymore? What do we do? Um, so uh, Harvey Firestone kind of goes around trying to find an alternative source of rubber. And eventually, he tries several places, but eventually kind of lands on Liberia. So it's those things. So the background, the, the deeper backgrounds feeds into it, but I don't think it's the only thing. It sort of provided a bridge as much as, yeah. That's fasc fascinating. Um, thank you. Um, what we're going to do now, if we come round to Eric here in the front row, and I think after that, because it'll take a second, uh, Chris in the middle of the third row. Yeah, thanks, Lee. This is great. Really, really fascinating. Um, I had two questions, but I think I'll, I'll only ask one because that's probably what I should do. Um, what, one, uh, my question is like just it, how similar are these concessions, um, you know, in the in the twenties and thirties to the Chinese investment in Africa today? Like, is this something that you can see as a parallel, or is it? Are they structured differently? Are they doing a better job of ensuring that there's investment that goes along with the kind of mining concessions and other? I, just kind of a, mm. yeah. That's a great question. I haven't studied the Chinese concessions in detail, and often the terms tend to be fairly opaque, shall we say. There's a lot of secrecy kind of embedded in those agreements, so it's quite hard to say in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, the, the concessions in the, the interwar period and post-war period in Liberia, they did invest to a limited degree. So there was investments in infrastructure. Um, it was how Liberia kind of went a different route in terms of the ordering of transport in most African countries. You had the railway, then roads, then air travel. In Liberia, you had the airfields, then, then expansion of the road network, then railways, which were built by the concessions. Um, but yeah, I mean, those investments kind of were very targeted, obviously, at what was strategically useful for the concessions. My sense is that's also true for the Chinese concessions. It's not something I've worked on in, in great detail. It would be a great project, though, to work on. Great. Um, let's let's go to Chris, who's in the middle of the back, the middle of the third row. Yeah. Um, and great. I'll add you to my list. Okay. Thanks, Lee, for a great talk. So I had also had two questions. The first one's a bit like Eric's, which is, do Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, places like this, copy the concession economy? Seems like once they're independent, they might want to do that. Second thing is, uh, it's really intriguing the sort of different trajectories between the two. If you're looking at living standards, would they look much closer given the sort of where the GDP growth is coming from, right? So what would you say about that? Okay. Um, do others copy the concession economy? I mean, concessions are used in other African countries, absolutely, and still today, right? Um, I think they're kind of more prominent in as a sort of development strategy within Liberia. In a lot of places like Ghana, they're quite suspicious and kind of don't, and still kind of tend to take a sort of a more cautious approach to trying this. Um, and this comes from even during the colonial period, British officials, I think, for reasons of wanting to maintain stability, were a little bit wary of this. And that actually builds into your question on living standards in the sense that the kind of export growth in Ghana was much more based on kind of smallholder production of cocoa. I mean, these were still elites, right? It wasn't sort of, I, so Yuta's written about sort of inequality in Ghana elsewhere. <laughs> and, um, and so, the cocoa economy, because you have to have capital to kind of invest in cocoa trees and sort of build those up, it's not something that sort of anybody can walk in and do. But it was a mechanism for social mobility that wasn't sort of purely international, like very capital intensive things doing this. So um, I look a little bit, there's not that many measures of living standards that are comparable between the two countries. 
Um, so one of the things I do look at is literacy, looking at sort of birth cohorts from the most recent census I can get data on. That's not a method without its problems, um, but it's what we have. And you do see that Ghana is sort of way ahead um, early on. Liberia starts to converge in the interwar period, but doesn't go entirely there. Um, and that's the sort of anecdotal sense as well. So one of the famous anecdotes in Liberia's history is when Nixon made that sort of um, trip to Monrovia after going to Ghana's independence ceremony. He's accompanied, obviously, by a bunch of reporters and photographers and whatever else. And all of them start making comparisons between Ghana and Liberia, saying Ghana has much better roads, the power works better, et cetera, et cetera. And I think because that early growth was sort of slightly more broadly, or the proceeds of the earlier growth was slightly more broadly distributed in Ghana than it was in Liberia. Fabulous. We're going to take one question um, from online uh, now, and then we're going to go up to Mr. Jaja after that. Um, the question's from um, Abdul Ibrahim from Sheffield, who's asking um, about uh, why Liberia was the main focus for foreign firms producing um, products like Africa, mm -hmm. pro products like rubber, rather than um, mm -hmm. other African countries. Was it simply, simply ge geographical serendipity? What, were there other factors that explain this concentration in these particular cash crops? Uh, yeah, it's partly geographic. Um, so it's partly that Liberian soils, despite the fact that sort of water carrying capacity is less, they're really good for tree crops, crops, kind of deep rooted things. Okay, so rubber trees grow really well. But I think it was also because colonial governments did tend to be a bit more cautious about concession granting, um, particularly in West Africa, out of concern for social stability, basically. They had political stability. They didn't want to have to deal with unrest. So it wasn't, wasn't that they were being nice. It was just they didn't want to have to deal with people, any uprisings against companies that were misbehaving. Um, so the opportunity kind of politically was, was more readily there. I mean, the Liberian government had greater freedom to make these sort of deals than governments under colonial control. It's interesting, the kind of risks of sovereignty, too, in some senses. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, let's go up to Mr. Jaja there. But in, about talking about that, the other person wearing a tie in the room. I'm saying <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Good evening. Yeah, uh, let me firstly uh, extend out um, my thanks and appreciation to Lessie and Professor Gardner for this uh, lecture. And I like to say it's part of a very in-depth perspective on Liberia. And it comes, uh, well, we, we are just celebrating this year. It's a year of our bicentenary and as an existence of, as a existence of the country. So it's been an entire year long celebration. So the, this publication comes as a very quite handy and strategic. <laughs> 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 It gives them an opportunity for us to see it more, more diverse, and I think uh, the the work is even more important because it's not just a distant scholarly perspective. There's a there's a unique uh, ethnographic feature to throughout the the book and where we, where you present it, and the coins you presented the coins, and we just reintroduce coins into the library economy. And then even more strategically, the, the strategic the disadvantages between Liberia and the colonial states in accessing capital, which reflect the disparity in, in, in infrastructure development at the time, it was a more nuance. 
in regards to discussion in a more contemporary way. And sovereignty matters, I like to add that part because the, the sovereignty of Liberia also presented a, a crucial edge in navigating those former colonial states towards independence and greater control and how the incumbents of these wars, those territories of these wars, and you know, the, the Hufuids you know, of that era, and you know, the, the Kayantas who pioneered a new sense of consciousness across the African continent that would lead towards the birth of the African Union, and it's a organization of African unity. So Liberia's sovereignty also provided the, a, a pioneering role in leading those countries to give them and a greater control of the states and how much uh, sovereignty and independence brings is another conversation that will go far beyond this book I, I, I would like to to, to indicate. <coughs> but uh, representing MSO Liberia, I'm proud to be a part of the discussion. I think we look forward to accessing copies of the book and uh, for more in-depth discussion. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, um, and thank you for being here. Uh, just to say, one of the things that, I mean, one of the things that drew me into working on this in part was, or drew me into actually turning this into a book, I'd first imagine just a paper on the, the Liberian dollar or whatever, um, was actually reading Liberian newspapers from 1957 and 1958 and 1960 and kind of seeing Liberian commentary on the independence of the rest of Africa, which was a fascinating view of kind of hey, we've been here, this is what, they had a kind of really interesting perspective on where other countries in the continent were going over the next few years, which was one of the really fascinating things to me. And yes, I should have mentioned the bicentenary, this is good, good timely <laughs> publication of the book. Yeah, it's a fabulous moment, isn't it? Yes. Really great. I, I would love to say that was planned, but it took me a lot longer than I thought to write the book <laughs> I had planned on it. <laughs> Brilliant, oh dear. Okay, I have several more questions. Let me, let me first bring in Melanie there in the middle and then we'll go up the back, okay? So I think you mentioned the, the pre-colonial pre institutions. Um, I wonder what what institutions you were thinking of specifically. So is that like, you know, state history or is that sort of thing? Or are you thinking about also uh, customs or cultural institutions? Um, kind of both, and they were kind of interlinked. So I have a, a whole chapter on this um, in the book and I only had time to mention it briefly here. Um, but basically looking at the kind of degree of centralization, sort of how political institutions were organized, but that also kind of fed quite deeply into cultural institutions. There was a close enmeshing between the two. Um, so the, the sort of standard political unit was sort of at village level, but not a whole lot larger than that. There were not very many centralized states in, in pre-colonial Liberia. Uh, but you did have these sort of cross-cutting ties between villages, so things like guilds, craft guilds, or secret societies, or things that were kind of both political, economic, and, and cultural as well. Um, so like I said, I have a, have a section of the book looking at that, and you could get these sort of, although there weren't very many centralized states, you could get kind of groups of villages that would come together more closely sometimes than others and sort of act together against, uh, you know, interacting with other places. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of dynamic picture that I think sometimes the, the data we're forced to use by the fact that data is scarce doesn't always capture. Fabulous. Um, right, let's go right, oh, sorry, Nick, you were on, you, uh, let me go right to the back, the, the um, lady on the, the back row with her hand up, and then we'll go to the row in front, then we'll come back to Nick, okay? Apologies, Nick. <laughs> 
So just out of curiosity, um, why specifically geographically? Why did America choose that specific region? I, I never heard about that or learned about it. I guess Sierra Leone is right next to it, so they were off the British, and then Cote d'Ivoire is uh, by the French. But how come there was nothing there prior? Doesn't seem I'm not finding much information about that. Or yeah, it's a great question, and I think it was. Um, it was partly that there wasn't that the population wasn't very dense, right? Um, so in the 1820s, when this is kind of being set out, I, European influence in Africa was very kind of sporadic and coastal, right? You didn't have the same kind of colonial territories claimed that you did later. And the what was then called the Grain Coast. So this is the sort of name by which that part of the uh, the part of the coast that became Liberia was known. It was after a particular pepper that Portuguese traders really liked. Um, called grains of paradise, uh, but there wasn't very heavy population density there. So they were. So this is a uh, essentially a sort of private organization looking for a place to put people they're bringing, right? So it was a place where they'd encounter kind of relatively limited resistance compared to other places where there was either a denser indigenous population or more established European presence. Uh, again, this wasn't the U.S. government doing this. It was the ACS, and therefore didn't have the kinds of, of reasons. They weren't trying to pick a fight with France or Britain or whoever else. But, yeah. Brilliant. Um, let's go immediately in front uh, of you. Uh, yes, go along. You had your hand up. Uh, hi. Um, it's I got a bit of like a, like a subjective question, maybe, but um, um, with the damage of the 1870 loan and then the Resurfacing of that loan, um, do you think that maybe even maybe not not on the question of sovereignty, but on the question of recognition, whether if Liberia hadn't received sort of this uniform recognition um, of sovereignty, um, maybe not had access to the same same capital to the capital markets, which caused the problem in the end, um, do you think maybe they'd be in a, maybe a, maybe a better position? Um, Thinking of there's like you know the uh, thinking of Somaliland and the modern day where you have an unrecognized essentially a essentially a, a independent state which is not recognized which is doing quite well economically and works around in their own difficult you know works around their issues um, would it perhaps put put, on, put Liberia on maybe a different trajectory if it was a split you know not not fully recognized as a as a sovereign state but yeah by being territory. It's an interesting question, and counterfactuals are fun. Um, I mean, one of the things I would say is that one of the reasons they declared, that one of the reasons they sought that recognition was to collect taxes, right? So it's difficult to, I think, had they not had that recognition, you know, the, the merchants from Sierra Leone would not have stopped arguing about this, right? Um, so I think at that point, without that recognition, it probably would have, I mean, they did suffer anyway, fairly substantial territorial encroachments from both the French and the British over the course of the, the scramble for Africa. And so I think there wouldn't have, it's hard to see a path whereby they remained a state without the without recognition. The recognition kind of allowed them, it's one of the reasons they remained independent, was to kind of play the British and the French and the, and the Germans kind of off against each other throughout. Um, so when one got too aggressive, they'd kind of buddy up to the other and kind of do that. But I think that would be hard to manage without formal recognition. Um, let's come down to Nick. Uh. Thanks very much, Lee. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the relationship between uh, the state in its efforts to collect tax and uh, 
local indigenous power structures. Um, I was wondering, was it sort of universally the case that there was a sense of subordination of chiefs as kind of and, and powerlessness as was seemed to be characterized in that quote you provided? Or were there sort of things more similar to indirect rules of co-opting of elites into these structures? Uh, definitely the latter. I mean, I think so at first, the tax structure changed and particularly as the foreign financial controls became kind of deeper. So initially, revenue was basically customs, there was very little revenue beyond that. Um, once they started the, the sort of and through most of the 19th century, the territorial extent was largely the coast, they didn't really try to exert that much authority on the coast, and they really couldn't right. And there were frequent fights between say indigenous um, groups that thought that sort of they should have access to that bit of the coast more than, yeah. Um, once you get to the kind of late 19th century and the kind of scramble for Africa, they start to realize that they need to lay some kind of claim to this territory or else Britain and France are going to take it. Um, and Britain and France do actually take quite a, quite a lot. Um, but to extend their they essentially had to do the same kind of thing that Britain and France did, which was empower indigenous authorities to exercise power on their behalf. And particularly when you get to the interwar period, and again, the use of labor taxes, requisitioning things, uh, there they sort of have indigenous authorities fairly deeply embedded in that system. Um, and you do get this sort of quite close, growing, increasingly close link between the central government and kind of indigenous elites, if not necessarily the majority of the population. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time, so if anyone's desperate, please put your hand up. I have a next question, though, from Louisa, who's four along here on the, sec on the second row there. So, Louisa, put your hand up. Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Lee, for the talk. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that um, when kind of the Liberian dollar collapsed, uh, they used the, West, the colo British colonial one. Um, so I was wondering in that phase of foreign concessions and kind of the political outlook shifting to the US, whether that was accompanied by a kind of monetary shift mm. as well. So yes is the answer. Um, so one of the issues that comes in, particularly in from World War One and kind of during the interwar period when the pound starts to depreciate against the dollar, by this point the Liberian government's debts are in dollars, not in sterling. So during the interwar period when sterling depreciates, it makes it very hard to service that debt. So there's lots of discussion over the over the inter whole of the interwar period about whether they shouldn't shift to the US dollar. And so I have a separate paper about this, but I talk about basically currency changes are expensive, right? So there's lots of talk about how this would be ideal, but actually putting it into practice is another question. So when this actually happens is in 1942, um, when the US government wants to put a whole bunch of troops in Liberia. And they really want those troops to be able to spend US dollars. So essentially the US government, US military puts the bill for changing over the currency. Right? Uh, but it comes after a long series. They even bring in, um, I think I think it's Firestar, somebody else brings in Kemmerer of all people to write, write a report on this. And it's just held in his papers in, in New Jersey, right, Princeton, saying, yeah, of course they should switch to the US dollar. I think it was in the late 1930s, but it doesn't actually happen until the 1940s. Um, we're very much coming towards the end of a our time. Uh, it's been a very rich discussion. Lots and lots of different um, items have been come out in the question, as well, obviously, as in the lecture before. Um, we are fortunate to be able to follow this up with, I think, a brief reception outside. Is that correct? That's, that's why. It's correct. <laughs> Marvelous. Um, so we'll be able to talk informally with you after this. Um, but I think we all owe you a very great and extensive round of 
applause to Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.